are listening to the Elephant in the Room podcast with your host, Sutta Singh. Each week, we will bring you a diverse range of inspiring speakers on issues of inequality and inequity. You will hear stories about fairness, justice, belonging, and about best practice for creating a more inclusive workplace. So, if you are an individual or leader interested in a fairer, equitable, compassionate society and workplace, this podcast is for you. My guest on the Elephant in the Room podcast this week is Sanjani Shah, Global Head of PR at The Body Shop. A Kenyan Indian, she has lived in Singapore, Paris and London and considers herself to be a citizen of the world. Good morning, Sanjani. Thank you for being a guest on the Elephant in the Room podcast today. Yeah, good morning or good afternoon in India. Such a pleasure to be on the podcast. Thank you. Now let's get started with a quick introduction. Tell us a bit about yourself. So I'm Kenyan Indian living in London. I'm one half of a dink, that's a double income, no kids, and one quarter of a pack of siblings. <laughs> uh, and I think, you know, if I just talk, if I say where I am now, I used to be FOMO and COVID has changed me to JOMO. So in my earlier years, always out, very social. And now I think since COVID, I've just become a lot more happy to be in my own company and don't feel like I have to be everywhere doing everything. So that's a little bit about me. Because this podcast is about leadership, I wanted to talk a little bit about my career and some of the roles that I've done and some of my highlights. I would say that my first actual job was with the International Red Cross in Kenya, and it was helping reunite families that were separated by the genocide in Rwanda. It was the most fulfilling role I've ever had. And it's the, it's the role that stays in my heart. And, and that was a role I did before I even went to university. It was in my gap year. And it was just amazing. And I actually learned a lot about leadership then. Another highlight I would say in my career is working with MasterCard in France. And I worked on their World Cup sponsorships. So it was all around events and sponsorships. And I got to go to all the World Cup games in 98 in France. And I met Pele. So that was a really amazing point of my career. I've then worked with two of the largest PR agencies, Edelman and Rubber Shandwick, based out of London and based out of Singapore. Now I'm working with one of the world's largest beauty brands and one of my favorite brands. And I love my job. It has so many highlights, but it's really taken me far and wide. Perhaps the favorite part of my job is kind of visiting our farmers. So I've, you know, done media trips and taken journalists far and wide to, you know, meet our farmers in Rwanda who grow our moringa or to the women's cooperatives in Morocco or to plastic waste pickers in India. So I just wanted to share that just as a little bit of flavor about myself, but also kind of what my work history has been about. Yeah, it's incredible. The entire journey, but the fact that you work with Body Shop, it's a brand that a lot of us admire. They are one of the early starters on the sustainability and for people and for planet kind of agenda. Yes. So it's incredible that you work with such a wonderful brand. Um, I know when I got the job, it was a real pinch me moment because <laughs> when you admire a brand so much and then you get yeah. to work for it, it's pretty amazing. Yeah, I can just imagine that. So for an 
Indian Asian brought up in Kenya, educated in the UK, someone who's worked in France and Singapore. How important is your identity to you? And how do you define it? I really struggle with being between, you know, in various cities in India, and then moving to the UK and then coming back. And it's like, yeah, where do I belong, actually? You know, people have asked me this question, and I've thought about it. And exactly that, you know, when you've been here and there and lived in lots of different places, you kind of tend to take on the identity of different places as well. I would actually say, and I I don't mean to sound like a cliche, but I do feel like I'm a global citizen. And actually, now I'm actively trying to lose the idea of having a strong identity. I'm actually very happy with not having a strong identity. Because I think having a strong identity, you end up putting yourself in a box by trying to give yourself an identity. And an identity, you a set of definitions that I think end up limiting you. And actually, you're so much more than an identity. So <laughs> I'm, I'm actively trying to lose the idea of identity. Okay, but that's a global citizen as an identity. You'd like to have yeah. that, not someone limited by the constraints of geography or the constraints of the mind. Or even constraints of upbringing or constraints of race or culture or religion, you know, yeah. That's very interesting. So as an ethnic minority in a senior leadership in a highly respected and recognized global brand, what would you say were two or three of your learnings from this career journey so far? Yeah, I would say that one of my earliest learnings is to stop trying to fit in. I think it's in the it's in the words of Oscar Wilde, be yourself, everyone else is taken. And I think it's really kind of drawn on me now that I bring a really unique set of things to wherever I work, to the body shop, and that's why I'm hired. But I spent a lot of my earlier career trying to fit in, trying to wear it, like actually become white, if I can say that. There's a running joke in my family that I'm a coconut, but it was because I was trying to fit in. And now I'm trying to really unlearn all of that, trying to fit in. I'm shaking off the uniform and I'm really trying to stay true to myself and stay confident in it. And what I would say is there's a few. So that's one of the biggest things I've learned. You know, don't try and be someone else, be yourself and be grounded in that. I've always considered myself to be a confident person and ready to speak up. But when the George Floyd incident happened, I realized actually I was not speaking up. I was seeing microaggressions or I was seeing injustices happen and I was not speaking up even in the workplace because of that whole trying to fit in and not putting my head up above the parapet. And it's all fear based, isn't it? If I stand out for the wrong reasons, I might get fired, that kind of thing. Yeah. But I feel, you know, in the, at the body shop, there were a lot of conversations that opened up after the whole George Floyd incident. And I think that was quite a pivotal moment in history, in my history anyway, in that suddenly it opened the doors for a lot of people to speak openly about something without the worry about recrimination. So as one of the people of color, you know, I was consulted for a lot of various kind of networks and things. 
And I would talk about some of the things I'd observed at the body shop. And, and I remember this conversation and she was in senior leadership and she said to me, Sanjay, why have you never said this before? And I said, well, it actually is really difficult, especially if you're in a predominantly Caucasian environment to speak up. And it didn't feel like a safe place. I think it shocked her that I didn't speak up. But I was like, well, because you're coming from that space of privilege where you've always been able to say what you want and it's so different but that that was really stark for me and I think now I use my voice a lot more and I'll do it as nicely as possible but I don't worry about the consequences and I think that's just gained me a lot of respect but I also feel a lot of responsibility being in my position you know, in a large organization, but also in a PR world, which in the UK is predominantly Caucasian. So I feel like there's a lot of responsibility on my shoulders. And if I don't use my voice, I'm kind of mistreating that responsibility. So yeah, those would be my kind of two biggest lessons. You've already spoken about culture fit because you wanted to fit in. What are your thoughts on it now at this stage? And what would your advice be to people? Because that's still, um, thing. That's still not gone off. I mean, a lot of it comes over time. When you're in your early career, there's a lot of fear. Although I see a new, in, like incoming people, younger people are quite fearless. I mean, if I compare myself to what, you know, yeah. when I was at that age, they're quite fearless. They kind of stand for what they want. But I would say that just, you are hired for your differences. You are hired for your uniqueness. Like be yourself, as I said, be yourself. Everyone is taken. So I'm spending a lot of time unlearning yeah. um, what I've learned. And and thankfully, I'm much wiser now. And, and I would say I fully embrace my Indianness and the different perspective it gives me. So I'm really a lot more comfortable in being relaxed now, not having that stiff, British upper lip being so proper which is what I've which I tried to do and actually quite frankly isn't me or wasn't me yeah and for example I've been told by quite a few of my managers that I'm a good negotiator and that's a real strength and I actually fully attribute that to my Indianness and my inherent kind of haggling <laughs> nature <laughs> and my boss now she's like well you've got an advantage over all of us in this you know and I'm like yeah I do so it's kind of drawing on the strengths that you have been given through kind of various experiences or you know through your childhood yeah that's so true that's so true as and you know you've been talking about sort of being more comfortable with your identity or who you are who you want to be now at this stage as an individual how important is purpose to you or does it mean something at all or is it just some fancy buzzword that's going around it's definitely a fancy buzzword that's going around in the corporate world I would say and the notion of everyone has an individual purpose actually used to really stress me out because I was like I don't know what my purpose is what, what is my purpose and that kind of oh I'm not enough because I don't have a purpose and it seemed like everyone else had a purpose but what I would say is having a purpose is important because without it, you kind of go through life at the whims of what's happening outside. So if you don't have a purpose, you can be at the whims of what's happening on social media or what's happening on news. And I think purpose just really helps center you. And I'm still figuring it out, but I would say that my purpose is to become a benevolent leader 
And I'm hoping that if by leading by example, I hope to serve and make a difference in people's lives. Again, I don't want it to sound like a cliche, but I've always had a certain type of management style or, or a certain type of manager. It's only recently that I had a very different manager and she really kind of embodies benevolence. And what I realized in me, I mean, if I look at me two years ago versus now, I really flourished under that kind of leadership. It helped me grow and it's really helped me become, you know, find my true self. And I'm so grateful for it. And and the way I work and my outlook to work has changed so much. So I feel like that's really what I now want to give to other people. Like you're saying, a good leader can really help you achieve your potential while a bad one can really undermine you. Yeah, and I've definitely been on both sides of the coin as a leader myself. But, you know, if someone isn't a good leader, it can really knock the confidence out of you and it can take you back quite a few years. So, yeah, I feel like my purpose is to really help people flourish. Yeah, that's a good purpose to have. And tell us what purpose means at the body shop and especially in your function. How do you live it or how do you embed it in the comms function? So I would say that the the body shop believes in change making beauty. The body shop is about change making beauty and it's not about an idealized version of beauty. So, you know, the body shop stands to fight for a fairer and more beautiful world, but it's also about natural beauty. And the focus is really about what's inside. And I, two years ago, did a campaign with the body shop on self-love. And it's really about helping people look at beauty through the lens of self-love. I mean, self-love is where it all begins. When you have that inside, that self-love inside, you can make change on the outside. And I would say as a comms function, you ask, you know, how, how do we embed it? I would say the, for me and for the team, the filter is that every piece of communication should uplift people rather than create fear, which the beauty industry does quite a lot. Yeah. So, for example, we recently, uh, it was last year, we launched a new range. We have a best-selling range called Drops of Youth. And we felt that it really didn't embody what a body shop stands for, what our values are. And as a business, we made the decision to change the name of that range. And actually, it was quite a big decision because it's our number one skincare range around the world. So any kind of change like that in a business is usually you'd say, do not do it because, you know, you, going you well. don't. <laughs> Yeah, don't break what's broken. But yeah. to us, it was already broken because drops of youth is already instilling fear and it's idolizing youth. And it's like completely against what we talk about. So we did a whole campaign and we've changed the name. And for us, it was an anti-anti-aging. You know, we're not here to try and get people to look younger. It's about yeah. helping people age gracefully. I'm working on a campaign now, which is about kind of, really not or, or debunking the myth of perfect skin so we're using models that absolutely don't have perfect skin but are able to tell their stories so as a comms department or the personal filter I use is this piece of comms uplifting or not and I feel like it's it makes it very simple then yeah that's a good way to filter out anything that doesn't meet with the standards right 
Yeah, and actually that thing of is is what I'm saying uplifting or not, it's a way I filter my comms at work, but also I've started using it outside of work. So, you know, if I'm talking, if I'm saying something to someone, I always try and use that filter. If I'm saying this, is it uplifting? And if it's not, do I need to say it? That's a really good one. Yeah, I'm going to try to do that. <laughs> yeah. In today's age, we tend to have this, I think a lot, lot of people do this, is that they're constantly wanting to speak, not to hear. And whether that talking helps that other person or not is not something that you're thinking about. So this is some very good advice and something <laughs> to practice. Yeah, I mean, I would 100% say I haven't perfected it by any means, but it's something I'm yeah, trying to yeah. be more mindful of. Yeah, I think it's just mindfulness. It's just trying yes. to yeah, we are not perfect and we are habituated to doing things in a certain way. We are, we are. And especially when it comes to things like our families or our friends, we slip into, because I think at work, you, you have a level of, you know, there are some rules at work and there are like brand guidelines, et cetera, which yeah. kind of keep yeah. you in check. But when you step outside of that world and into your personal world with family and friends, you often yeah. kind of drop into unconsciousness. So like a simple filter like this, it, for me, I'm definitely not embodying it right now, but at least it's an intention. So moving on, when Dame Anita Roddick started the business in 1976, yeah. she was of the belief that business can be a force for good, right? The world has changed dramatically since then and Body Shop has become a global organization. So how does the organization continue to build on its legacy? We can see that when it is not authentic, it is difficult to continue on that same strand of belief around sustainability or purpose and you see organizations faltering. Yes, and I think what you're saying is so potent for us that a lot of companies are kind of jumping onto the bandwagon of sustainability or campaigning, etc. But the body shop had that in its very DNA from the very beginning. So actually, it makes my job and the whole comms team's job really easy because everything is authentic. And even when we kind of we work with influencers or if we work with celebrities, the feedback we get from the agents is that I think nowadays people are being really careful which brands they work for. Yeah. But whenever the body shop is mentioned, there's like no questions. It's like, yes. <laughs> so I think that authenticity carries a lot. And what I would say is that the body shop really does continue to be a force for good. So one of the things, one of Anita's biggest legacies was our stance against animal testing. I think that's, you know, when you ask someone, what do you know about the body shop? It's the number one thing that comes up. We were the first cosmetics company to campaign against animal testing in cosmetics in 1989. And we're now taking that further. And we're now set to become the first global beauty brand to have 100% of its product formulations vegan by the end of this year. So we're working with the vegan society. They certify us. They have very stringent certification. So by the end of this year, we're set to be 100% vegan with all our formulations. So we feel that we're taking that legacy against animal testing and we're growing and building it. Another thing that Anita started, and I think she was a little bit ahead of her time, was refills. So you could come in store and you could bring your bottle of shower gel and you could get it refilled. This 
scheme kind of stopped for a while because I think, like I said, it was a bit ahead of our time. Consumers yeah. were just not ready for it. But also a lot of health and safety regulations kind of emerged and just made it very difficult. But if something was very much still in our hearts. And two years ago, we relaunched our refill skin scheme with the underlying thinking that why waste a container when you can refill it? So how it works is really simple. We have refill stations in a lot of our stores. We have 822 refill stations around the world. Wow. And we've got a range of 12 of our best-selling shampoos, conditioners, shower gels, and hand washes. You have an aluminium bottle that can be reused over 100 times. And you can come in, once you've finished it, you come in and it gets refilled. So it's great. We've saved over 20 tons of plastic from going to waste from this. And so far, 350,000 people have used our refill scheme. So we're just looking to make that bigger. So again, we're just continuing the legacy of Anita. And then I would say in terms of force for good, Anita also kind of really pioneered a program called the Community Fair Trade Program, which mm -hmm. is the body shop's bespoke fair trade program and back in the day when she launched it it was called trade not aid and the philosophy was rather than giving people donations and philanthropy you teach them a skill you trade with them you buy them so that they have a long-term income but also it helps their self-esteem and the benefits of trade versus aid are multiple so that program is still going really strong and we continue to invest in it like from handcrafted chair butter in ghana to recycled paper bags from nepal to our plastic packaging coming from india the program goes from strength to strength i would say in terms of you know, Anita was known for doing things very differently. And one of the things and like my favorite thing to launch at the body shop was our community fair trade plastic. We launched that, I think it was in 2019. And we essentially get plastic that's picked by waste pickers in India. Yeah. And we use that in our packaging. For example, a third of the plastic in India goes uncollected through official means. So there's a vast, as you know, there's a vast um, kind of industry of waste pickers. So we work directly with organizations who work with waste pickers. I took a big group of journalists from around the world to meet the waste pickers. And it was just, you know, the most heartening emotional kind of trip where we met the waste pickers we spent days with them we joined them in kind of picking up the waste and sorting it out so we we started with like one range of shampoo bottles we were using the plastic and now it's going across so many more of our ranges so I think what I would say is the body shop it really continues to build on Anita's legacy yeah so it's not sitting tight on things that did decades ago but every no, day absolutely not build on that yes so we've already spoken about you know authentic communications and authenticity and with consumers and stakeholders wanting more accountability and authenticity there's so much scrutiny nowadays what are your thoughts on greenwashing and sustainability washing i mean it's rife right <laughs> yeah <laughs> And I've heard that it's just the beginning. It's going to get worse 
before it gets better because everyone feels the need to say something whether they yeah I mean it's that need or that feeling like oh I have to say something otherwise you know but I I would say Greta Thunberg put it the best it's all blah 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 isn't it there's so much blah 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 out there and it's the I think the climate change movement and the sustainability movement is kind of littered with phrases like carbon neutral by 2030, net zero by 2050. Doesn't mean anything. Like, does that mean anything to you? What does it actually mean? And I think for the layman, it's no. so intangible. And that, I feel like this is why people just switch off the whole debate and just can't get their heads around it. And I have a friend who works in sustainability, had dinner with him the other night, and he was saying there was a really important paper that came out, like after the Code Red paper. And he said on the day that paper came out saying that we are on the brink of a major catastrophe, he said that day there was more news coverage given to a football game than to that paper. So I just feel like it is this greenwashing and this sustainability washing and that everyone feels like they need to say something that's just made us all deaf to it all now anyway. But I would say that I know what you mean about things will get worse before they get better, but there are some things that are starting some some I see people are being pulled up on it. For example, last year there was a historic high court ruling that found the UK government's climate strategy unlawful um, because they hadn't set out how they were going to tackle all their claims properly. And then at a work level, we know that the authorities are really tightening up on misleading claims from companies. So the UK authority, competition and markets authority are expecting to get significant powers in the near future. I know this. It sounds all very technical. I know this because we got a big kind of training from our compliance team and they will be able to find companies 10% of global turnover and an individual up to 300,000 pounds for if they find something to be greenwashing or misleading and we know that French authorities are also making changes to their consumer codes to have similar fines. I would imagine that a lot more authorities around the world are going to start doing this. Yeah, that is, I think there's a lot of work to be done around demystifying it and actually getting people to emotionally be invested in it. Oh, yeah. Currently, there's a lot of jargon that's been thrown around. What does it mean? What can I do to change things? And also, often it is not about individuals who have the power to make that change that's going to really be substantive. Yeah, exactly. And that's why, of course, we'll have our targets and our kind of very, you know, our sustainability team has like specific targets. But when we communicate with customers, we often don't talk about those. We will talk about our refill scheme and how you can get involved. Like our customers really want to know, what can I do? How can I get involved? And that's the level we try to communicate rather than at the target by 2050. I mean, you can't even think about 2050. It's just too far away. and hard to think about meanwhile as individuals you can yes less plastic and less aluminium and recycle more and yeah all all of and and support communities from around the world so that's where we really as a comms team but even as a business we it's about the tangible differences that we can make as a business but that our customers can also we can also help our customers make customers get on the journey Sanjani you spoke earlier about benevolent leadership and so I want to know, how do you define leadership? Who would you say is a good leader? 
and your leadership style, as you said, you want to be a benevolent leader. Yes. Evolve <laughs> over the decades. So I would say to me, the mark of a great leader is someone that uses power versus force. And there's a book called Power Versus Force, which I just finished reading. It's really interesting because I think in our minds, we equate force as power, but it's not. And power sits in the world of benevolence and force sits in the world of fear mongering. That's a really big difference. And for me, you know, somebody who embodied that is Obama. I think he was very much a benevolent leader who embodied that. And I would say my personal style has changed so much from earlier in my career and really thankfully so. And I would say that my leadership style used to be a bit like Captain Von Trapp from The Sound of Music. (laughs) (laughs) And I love to say this, but I use this reference Because Sound of Music is my favorite film, despite my husband finding it so cringy. And I don't know if it will resonate with the listeners of your podcast, but I was very Captain Von Trapp. And I would say I am now more Maria, or at least more Maria. (laughs) Yeah, I, I think it immediately gets to your mind what you're trying to say. Yeah, I agree. I think we evolved in what we believed was good leadership to where we are now. Yeah, and I would say, you know, I talked a little bit earlier about working for large network PR agencies, and especially one of them, Weber Shanwick, was for me, was really the school of hard knocks. I had very, very tough managers there, very competitive, very, you know, throwing people under the bus, that kind of thing. So you kind of become, you develop this hardened shell and you become like that. But I think, you know, competition is the old paradigm. Collaboration is the new paradigm. So this whole separation and trying to get teams to compete with each other, it's just, I don't think it works. And this world probably wouldn't be in this state if it did work. I've had a boss who would give a few of us in the team a task and then she would kind of be like, oh, but this person did it really well. And and she would try and kind of She actually said to me, I like to create a little bit of competition in the team so that it just gets the best out of everyone. And I now realize that absolutely doesn't get the best. No, it doesn't. It doesn't. It really doesn't. It's the most demoralizing thing. Yes. Yes. You want to do well, but you're still held back because you know this person is going to be doing this with other people too. Yeah, but here's the interesting thing. So when she set that challenge, I kind of came out on top, seemingly on top, because I she, she really liked my work and she was kind of like, you know, she made a public, oh, this is really great. It made me feel really uneasy, mm. but it also then caused friction between me and my teammates. It wasn't even created by me. It was created by my boss, but it created friction. And then later, my teammate came and said, oh, can you help me with this? And I said, sure. And she said, thank you so much. And I felt, she's like, I was so demoralized by that whole thing. And, you know, you're so good at everything and I'm not. And I just thought that competition is setting people up to be good or bad at something. And I'm like, well, you have skills that I absolutely don't have. And it's just not the way I want to be led or that I want to lead. Yeah, that is so true. That's a good way to lead, actually. Yes, yes. (laughs) So, Sanjay, how important are networks, mentors, sponsors for women and other disadvantaged groups? What has been your experience? For someone like, for me, I have 
never had any time for networking until I'd say 2018-19, which is most part of my life actually. And I missed out on that, the opportunities that come from networking or the relationships or the learning that you have from networks. What has been your own experience? You know what? I actually find the word networking a bit cringy. Not cringy, but it's the idea. I don't know. To me, the concept of networking was going somewhere, going for drinks and making small talk with people and then trying to like <laughs> advance yourself. Oh, my concept of networking no. is totally not what networking should be about. But that was what was in my head. So when anyone would be like, you should be networking, I felt like, God, I feel oh, really... I I can't do it or God, I'm so bad at networking or everyone else is so good at this and it's such a key skill and I'm really bad at it. So it's always something that I thought I'm bad at until my current boss and she said to me, God, you're good at networking. And I just looked at her and I thought, are you mad? (laughs) Um, And actually networking, I think that the corporate networking term honestly gives me the heebie-jeebies, but I think it's about the power of personal connections and being able to connect with people on a very personal level. And I think that's really important. And we do have numerous networks at the body shop set up for kind of women, for diversity. And I think they're really great. And I think they you know, you come together, you form a bond over a common kind of thing that you're passionate about. So those kind of networks, I really believe, and I think they're really good, but the other type of networking, you know, the... <laughs> that does sound that, happy, actually, yeah. It's like, sort of upselling yourself to someone, yeah, and you need to get in their good books. Yeah, yeah, and it's just something that, like, I find so awkward and alienating for me but but like I said the kind of networks I'm talking about like if we have a diversity network at work or a women's network and you'll have a common goal and then the network sets up lots of events so then you're all doing something together and that's really good because I think that gets you out of your own team you get to know the whole business you get to know so many different people from different I'm in the comms team but I'll get to know someone in the supply chain team I'll get to know someone in legal and I think it's really great because when you start building those relationships when you need a project done quickly and you need to get past certain challenges when you know the people in that team even if it's not the person you can be like hey your boss is giving me a really hard time. How do I get around this? So that's where all the personal connections and unlocks come in. But I don't know. I think I've just, I've seen networking in a, to me, the definition of networking was very different. And it was only when my boss said, no, 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 no. But this is networking. And I was like, oh, then I do it. She's like, yeah, you do. What are your thoughts on mentors and sponsors? I think mentors and sponsors are so um, important. I would say I have a mentor in my current boss but I also had a mentor for a year at the body shop he's in the executive leadership team so he sits on the board and it's pretty amazing to have that kind of a mentor because you know you don't know but when they're having meetings and your name comes up he will jump in and he'll be like yeah Sanchi does this and she does that so you don't realize the power of that person kind of championing you in the rooms where you're not at 
So I think that's really important. But what it also really taught me was I'm kind of caught up in my comms world. And obviously he's at the board level. So he sees a much wider world of the body shop. And he helped me expand that view. He helped me, you know, get myself out of this little comms hole and just be like, well, just think about the big, you know, the bigger picture and what else is going on. And we met monthly and he would tell me what's keeping him awake and I'd tell him what's keeping me awake. And then that really helped because you suddenly realize, oh, that's the bigger picture. That's what matters. And vice versa, actually, he'd often tell me that some of the things that I was worried about, actually, he would then realize that this isn't working so well and he would take it back to the board so yeah and actually I had reached a bit of an impasse in my career I had stagnated kind of hadn't been promoted for a while and it was actually this journey of mentoring that helped me unlock quite a lot of why I was getting stuck and stagnating and it really helped me kind of move move roles so very critical for personal and professional growth I'd say yes so who are your role models and what is on your reading list Sanjani so I would say my ultimate role model is, I mean, she's not alive now, but is Anita Roddick, the founder of The Body Shop. And I just remember in a sea of standardized beauty ideas and maybe at that time, like very French kind of beauty ideas, she took the beauty world by a storm. She was bold. She was daring. She did things differently. She gave zero Fs and she just left a really everlasting impression on me and like her legacy still lives on and she was like just one in a kind and also I've heard that she was very petite and I'm very small so it's kind of like you know small women can be very powerful I've talked about my boss a little bit she is a role model for me in terms of benevolent leadership but like I said I really flourished under her so it's really interesting because my one-to-ones with her are not I would say like 5% of it will be about a project or work. The rest of it will be about I'm having this challenge and then it will be like, how can I deal with this challenge in the highest way possible? And she'll teach me that if someone's being really kind of defensive to not use the same force back because she's like, you'll never be able to match that with this person. So we try and find a different way of tackling it. So it's really amazing. And then I would say another role model I have is my husband. And I really hope he doesn't listen to this because he will die and he'll find it so cringy. But you know, if I observe myself, I can be very reactive sometimes. And he responds rather than reacts. And it's such a calming way to live. So not only is he calm, but he calms people down. And I find that to be pretty amazing. In terms of what's on my reading list, I'm currently reading Autobiography of a Yogi. It's a book that's been on my mom's bookshelf for the longest time. And it's been there since, you know, we were growing up. Everyone's read it. It's kind of dog-eared and everything's falling apart on it. I did try reading it when I was younger, but I didn't get very far. And now the time is ripe and I love it. That's like, yeah, autobiography of a yogi. Yeah, that's like a very interesting book to read. So moving on to the last question, in hindsight, what would you do differently? Hindsight is always twenty twenty. Yes, hindsight is. I wouldn't do anything differently. I've thought about this question quite a lot, actually. I wouldn't do anything differently because every single choice I've made, whether good or bad, 
has led me to where I am now and I love where I am now. So I would say that everything that happens to us is there to make us grow and even the seemingly bad, well, especially the seemingly bad choices and actions. So I wouldn't change a thing. Wow, that's great. Yeah, I, I think I sort of concur with that view. I wouldn't change anything. There are lots of things which are not exactly satisfactory at this point. But yeah, I'm happy where I am. I wouldn't want to go back and start again and say, oh, this shouldn't have happened to that. Yeah, I wouldn't. Yeah, this, this is it. The, the should have, could have, oh, I made such a bad choice. I mean, this, this, it was done. And yeah what I've learned from it and what followed afterwards. And I'm really happy where I'm, I'm not saying my life is perfect by no means, but in terms of where I am within myself, I'm so fine. And I realize actually where I am is only because of all the choices I've made in the past, good or bad. Yeah, that is so true. That's what has made all of us. This has been such a brilliant conversation, Sanjani. Thank you for making time. Uh, Loved having this chat with you. Uh, Thank you once again. Absolute pleasure. And thank you so much for inviting me on the podcast. I've loved every second of it. No, I have to thank you for making time for this, definitely. (laughs) Thank you for joining us this week on the Elephant in the Room podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on any of your favorite platforms, iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts. And if you enjoyed listening to the podcast today, don't forget to write a review and tell your friends. Sign up on the link in the show notes to receive updates on our guest speakers, blogs, and events. And don't forget to tune in every Thursday for new episodes.